0: Okay, well, welcome everybody and uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk with you on this lovely weekend about uh, some rather less than lovely features of the society in which we live. Uh, the official title of the topic uh, of this session is uh, Capitalism, Inequality and the Australian Economy and that's broadly speaking the area that I'll canvas although I think it might be rather nice to rename the session uh, Capitalism, Covid and Class, because uh, not only does that have a nice alliteration, but I think it's a lead-in to the recognition that when we talk about inequality, we are talking about class fundamentally, although, of course, we have to recognise other dimensions of inequality associated with race and gender in particular. And it's a great pleasure to be on this uh, session with my uh, colleague and comrade Phil Griffiths here, who's done a a lot over many years to contribute to a deeper understanding of uh, class and race, in particular, in in Australia. Some prefatory remarks, fairly quickly, because... uh, and I are only going to speak for 15 minutes to kick off this process uh, before we move into discussion, but it's always helpful to know where particular speakers are coming from. Uh, I should say my own political affiliations, always relevant, particularly at a conference uh, such as this, um, are that I was in the ALP during the 1980s. I left that to join and help form and develop the new left party in the 1990s, which for a while looked like a great initiative at building a effective broad left, but it, uh, after only about three year period, it ran out of steam and effectively imploded. <laughs> I then joined the Greens, uh, of which I've been a member ever since. I must say I feel a good fraternal relationship with parties of the far left, Though I've not been a member of an explicitly Marxist party, I take the view that uh, we get better politics, more progressive politics, if there's a strong Marxist uh, presence in public debate. I should also say, relating. to clarification that the question of the state is, I think, very fundamentally important and speakers will often have different views about the state and it's helpful there too to understand what position people in general take. Uh, It's common among Marxists to see the state as an instrument of the capitalist class. Fine. No one, I think, would doubt that uh, the influence of capitalism on the state is fundamental. Uh, But also we must recognise, I think, that the state, by which I mean government, uh, both state and federal in the Australian case, but all the other associated institutions of national administration, um, is also shaped by the influence of democracy. And therein, of course, lies a tremendous tension between serving the interests of a capitalist class and being responsive to and appealing to the votes of the people as a whole. But thirdly, there's also a bureaucratic element in the state. After all, we are talking about a complex set of institutions that are peopled by individuals, groups of people, with with their own particular interests. And that tends to give inertia to the uh, way in which the state acts, among other things. But understanding how the state is buffeted, so to speak, between these different priorities, the influence of capitalist class, the need to legitimize its activities in the face of the people as a whole, but also shape in practice by the way in which it, the state itself is structured, including it, its bureaucratic characteristics. I think that these prefatory remarks help to explain how I'm going to interpret the current uh, political economic situation and its contra- contradictory characteristics. Capitalism, of course, is always crisis prone, and ever since the last global crash in the began 2008-2009, the global financial crisis, it's looked ever shakier. During the last decade, we've seen modest rates of economic growth. Certainly nothing like the growth rates that were experienced earlier in my life during that period, the 1950s, 1960s, early 1970s, when annual rates of growth, 3 4% per annum, uh, increased uh, opportunities for capital accumulation, more or less full employment. All of that is a very distant history. We haven't seen anything like that in recent times. Capitalism seems to limp along. Uh, driven in the Australian case, I would suggest, by three particular fractions of capital, uh, finance capital, uh, and more broadly, what's sometimes called the fire sector, uh, finance, insurance, and real estate, which has, in recent times, been very prosperous, getting an increasing share of the surplus generated in the economy, and in particular, benefiting from rising uh, real estate values. All of those pressures enable some people to get enormous income without work. Secondly, there's, of course, the construction sector. Uh, I was out in Vaucluse uh, recently. Um, just went out there for a swim at uh, Shark Bay and... Uh, I was struck by the amount of cranes in the area. Four Clues is a very affluent, well-settled, well-established elite suburb. But they're ripping down houses and replacing them with new, even more modern mega-mansions by the waterside there. So when we talk about the construction centre, we're not talking just about the building of new houses on the urban fringe. We're talking about major capital investments in restructuring the whole urban fabric. And then, uh, in addition to that, of course, there's the mining sector. Uh, uh, It's no surprise, that, as reported in in last week's Saturday paper uh, by uh, journalist Mike Seckham, that uh, the richest people in Australia are mining magnets. Gina Reinhardt, who rather surprisingly Mike Seckham describes as lucky, um, I'll read the relevant paragraph. It comes down to the luck of the markets. On the long view, Reinhardt's wealth can be sourced largely to luck, notwithstanding the fact that she might be a savvy business person. She had the luck to be born 67 years ago to a father, Lang Hancock, who had the luck to hold a pastoral lease that proved to have vast quantities of iron ore under it. Hancock Prospecting then had the luck of the Chinese economic miracle, which required huge amounts of steel. More recently, Reinhardt had the luck of a couple of mining disasters in Brazil, which affected exports from the world's second largest iron all-producing nation, and then the luck that while Brazil's COVID-19 response was disastrous, the Chinese economy recovered quickly from the virus-induced economic shock. So, foreign prices, foreign ore, and other minerals on global markets helps Gina Reinhardt to increase her wealth from uh, the phenomenal to the super-phenomenal over the last year notwithstanding COVID and all the, uh, the struggles that are going on to uh, less privileged people. There could hardly be a clearer view, not of the influence of luck in our society, but of the influence of class. She's in that class position, which effectively uh, she was born into, uh, and although elements of luck may come along in terms of uh, having your investments in the right industry sector... The, the capacity of the fabulously wealthy to re- reconstruct their uh, portfolios of capital assets is, of course, uh, without parallel in other sections of the society. So even if those elements of luck hadn't come along, her wealth could have been used rather uh, possibly almost as equally lucrative uh, means of reproducing and expanding itself. That is the nature of capital and capitalism. And not surprisingly, it is a system that generates an underlying tendency, therefore, to inequality. As capital makes capital, and people without capital are typically stuck in a vicious circle uh, where they're subject to uh, exploitation, perhaps to discrimination uh, and oppression. It's the polarizing tendency within capitalism that exists in all uh, capitalist societies. But we've also seen, uh, along with this redistribution of income from uh, labor to capital over the last decade, uh, other contradictory features, Life is not all roses and uh, sweet times for capitalists. Uh, as Marx pointed out, there is a fundamental tension embedded in a capitalist system which is associated with inequalities. Because the although it's in the interests of capitalists to exploit workers, pay them as little as necessary it, in order to extract the surplus from their labor, but capitalists also require workers to be consumers. After all, they're the majority of the people, and if they're not having adequate incomes to purchase the increasing array of goods and services being produced, then there is a tendency to a crisis of ineffective aggregate demand. This is the the tension that Marxists refer to as the tension between the production of surplus value and the realisation of surplus value. The realisation process requires workers to be consuming products, which then enables the potential profits generated through the exploitation of labour to be realised as actual profits in the cash register of capitalist businesses. And then along comes COVID. We talk about capitalism, inequality, uh, cap- the Australian economy limping along during the uh, 2010s. And then COVID knocks things sideways. Very different from the global financial crash, uh, which emerged from within the contradictions of capital, in particular in US markets for real estate finance, and spread to become a global financial crash, threatening the the whole financial architecture before governments in the United States and elsewhere came to the rescue with, uh, with bailouts of various kinds. This time has been very, very different. The crisis didn't emerge directly from the contradictions of capitalism. It, it emerged as a health crisis and not the system sideways. And governments, uh, therefore, were quickly called on to uh, provide uh, remedial action, bailing out banks, yes, and in particular, providing financial stimulus. To keep the the economy going, the economic impacts, of course, were therefore mitigated by these subsidies to capital and some cushioning for for labour. Most obviously, the raising of the former new start uh, payments for unemployed people to the uh, new job keeper level, effectively a doubling of the unemployment benefits, albeit temporarily. And, of course, the JobKeeper arrangements, which I'm sure are familiar to most of you, uh, whereby there was an attempt to maintain the connection between employers and their employees through these government subsidies paid, as you know, to the businesses, not directly to Labour, and in many cases, as we've seen in recent news reports, flowing through into higher profits for those companies and higher uh, rewards for their shareholders. Uh, hence all the f- political furor about whether those uh, capitalist enterprises should have to return to the state the public funds that were given to them only, really, as a, uh, an inducement to keep workers on the books, not, not to benefit the, the shareholders. But looking at this set of circumstances and policy responses from government and asking the question, how does that impacted inequality, is not altogether easy to answer. Because some of those payments have gone to people who were previously pretty poor on Struggle Street. Um, but the evidence that's emerging now is that it seems that inequalities have risen over that uh, last year, partly because of the rorts to which I've just alluded, uh, but also because just generally speaking, this has been a time of relative prosperity for businesses. Sure, some, bus- some businesses, small businesses in particular, have gone to the wall, probably won't recover. Particularly over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that as the final elements of the, uh, the, 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 the JobKeeper uh, arrangements are, are withdrawn. But big businesses have done generally well. And uh, that information that I was reading out from Mike Sackham, uh, he reports more generally on the growing concentration of wealth at the top end during the last year. And we know, some of you probably know better than I do from personal experience how difficult this period has been for uh, people on uh, casual work. Uh, casual work's always insecure, but the element of insecurity has been exacerbated. There's also a gender dimension. Uh, women have been concentrated in sectors where. There's been a lot of social stress. I'm thinking in particular of the health services, uh, provision of elderly care. Uh, so, in that sense, there's been a great demand for women's labor, and I might say as an aside, I think a growing social awareness that a good healthy society does depend upon the provision of services, some paid, some actually unpaid. My um, comrade Phil Griffiths here is engaged in some unpaid uh, labour involving elderly care within the family. These these are social supports that are necessary not just for a, a thriving society and good personal relations, but they underpin the functioning of, of our economy. If you don't have good health, social reproduction, then nothing else ultimately will will uh, will stand up. But uh, of course, women are also less well represented among the occupations that have prospered during the last uh, uh, year or so. I'm thinking in particular of the upper echelons of management in businesses, where women are scandalously unrepresented and therefore have not enjoyed In some cases, the additional benefits that have flowed to people because of the ability to work from home, adjust their working lives in ways that fit in with their own uh, personal uh, preferences. So this... Yeah, I'm starting to wrap up. This is the big picture. Profits holding up well, inequality tending to increase, but we'll get better evidence of that uh, as, as we proceed. What's to be done? Uh, Let me just finish by pointing out three avenues that uh, we might explore more fully in discussion. One is the all-too-familiar response of the Morrison government uh, to try to snap back to the previous unsatisfactory situation. Budget repair. Yes, we more cuts to public expenditure, presumably primarily in social services areas coming down the track, but there'll be tax cuts for the wealthy. Indeed, they're already legislated. The second and third tranches of the uh, income tax uh, reforms will overwhelmingly benefit rich people. Overwhelmingly. And Also, we can expect, I think, more push on industrial relations reform in the event that this government is re-elected. It was frustrated in its recent attempt, but I think that recent attempt showed clearly what its longer-term class agenda is. The alternative, which you might expect the ALP to be embracing at this time, is something of the sort of a Green New Deal because although I haven't mentioned it yet, the uh, challenge of climate change is the still bigger challenge that faces us as a society in in the uh, years ahead. And it doesn't take a great genius to recognise that a programme of a Green New Deal could be implemented by a social democratic stroke labour government. Uh, Evidently, they're reluctant to do it. They're, they're, they're formulating their electoral strategy and policy platform right now and uh, it seems unlikely that it's going to feature anything like a comprehensive Green New Deal. It could and it should and its components are obvious enough. Uh, green jobs, industry policy, regional policy in other words, planning to restructure the economy for a more sustainable future as we come out of the current crisis. Uh, People on the right often say, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Well, on the left, you could say just the same thing too. And here's an opportunity for a progressive uh, party, aspiring to be in government, to push that agenda, along with a tax reform that would make... Our taxation system more progressive, with more emphasis on wealth taxes, for example, along with uh, a programme of just transition, which involves reskilling people having to move between occupations, along with a programme of Indigenous rights, drawing on the knowledge and interests of Indigenous people to create that better future in Australia, healing the deep scar. will otherwise be with us forever in this country, in in this process. And arguably also empowering uh, people at the grassroots level. Regional forums, workplace activities, uh, role of unions engaged in developing and implementing some such Green New Deal. But I don't think it's going to happen. So... It's up to the people. It's up to the people. I think the the way to think of a Green New Deal is as a rallying point, not as a program to be implemented by government. In other words, it's an agenda involving things like green jobs, regional development strategies, uh, tax reform, fairer distribution of income, indigenous engagement, etc., etc., etc. In other words, we're back again on as everyone on the left would know, in the familiar territory of people's struggles to get a better future. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. So next we'll have Phil Griffiths. <coughs> well, generations of political economy students at uh, Sydney Uni would have told you that listening to Frank's lectures was one of the highlights of their degree. I think you can... You can see why today. Um, That was great. Frank, thanks. Um, I want to basically go over what's happened with the economy and government intervention in the economy through the COVID crisis and then look at what might come out of it, uh, again, in terms of uh, the economy. Mostly focusing on Australia, but not only. I think the way we can sum it up is to say that when the the, uh, pandemic hit, uh, certainly the advanced Western countries the rich Western countries, there were very sharp recessions everywhere. The economy fell by, what, 7%, sorry, you know, at a quarter in Australia, you know, 10% in other countries. Um, but very rapid, there's been very rapid recovery from those, those bo- the bottom points uh, in most countries. In some places, their economies are now bigger than at the start of the pandemic. Other places there, um, they're still somewhat behind. Australia's marginally behind where it was Um a year ago, um, and this was done. This was this. We get this result through the most massive government intervention in the economy since the Second World War, when the intervention was to wage war, um, uh, massive stimulus to prop up business uh, and the banking system. And as Frank said, and it's very very important um, to raise the living standards of people who are unemployed uh, and so on. So. I think it's first of all worth going through some of the elements of the government's response. Of their, um, in Australia, it amounted to around 10% of gross domestic product. With Joe Biden's new, um, just passed uh, uh, recovery bill, um, the American stimulus will be 20%, double Australia. Australia's actually, you know, not among the biggest uh, in the world. Of the money, 130 billion, roughly, will go to businesses through uh, JobKeeper, but also through a stimulus measure that most people don't know about. At the beginning of the pandemic, the, governments, the government gave small businesses up to $50 million turnover, um, a, basically a cash boost. I think the maximum was $100,000. And that money basically was... They just said, well, you've collected tax on behalf of your employees. Don't give it to us. Right? And that was a $40 billion stimulus just directly uh, to businesses. JobKeeper, $25 billion went to house, households through JobSeeker, the coronavirus checks, uh, and so on. Again, a massively something like two and a half times as big as the Rudd Gillard stimulus after the global financial crisis, uh, which was, of course, you know, excoriated and attacked and criticised by, by the Conservatives. Um, and, and, that's, and that's had a, a, a very, very significant impact. So, what we have is what I would call a real incomplete and uneven uh, recovery. So if you look at how many hours workers in Australia have worked, now I didn't see the figures that came out on Thursday, but the previous month there was, I think, about you know, a small percentage, 1% below the figure for, uh, for, for, for the previous year. So basically the amount of hours people are working is, is slightly down, unemployment is up, um, but I, I imagine the latest figures would have seen that uh, improve again, but I'm not, I haven't seen them yet. What you also said, this is the, my experience in the suburb I live in, in which is a middle-ring suburb in Melbourne. On the one hand, you walk down the street and there are empty shops, lots of empty shops. On the other hand, the cafes all have ads asking, looking for, for labour. Right? You've got the, Both of those things are happening at the same time. Bankruptcies and, uh, and, and, and uh, an expansion uh, in, in jobs. Um, on the one hand, you have empty hotels in Melbourne particularly, vast areas of high-rise uh, that were built for students, student accommodation, that are either totally or almost totally empty. Um, on the other hand, has anyone tried to buy a new car lately? You'll get... No, no, I'm, of course I'm not in that room, am I? Uh, <laughs> but my niece did, and she's, she's got to wait three months for her new car. Right? There's a six-month... Tw- for most cars, six months, 12 months waiting. To buy a new car, because the the demand for new cars has gone uh, through the roof. Um. So, so of course, so the other thing that's interesting too is the previous um, quarter, the December quarter, of gross domestic product figures. We don't have any for this year. showed that the economy grew by I think it was four point two percent, which is a massive growth in a quarter. Actually, the truth is the private sector shrank. All of that GDP increase was the government starting to go back to charging normal tax and cutting its subsidies and so on. So even now, while there is definitely a recovery, we really don't know what the shape of it is going to be. Um, And I think people, a lot of ruling class uh, writers, are getting way ahead of themselves saying, you know, the economy's on steroids, it's all going to be great. Um, I think the the, 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 the key dimensions to why, why the government did what it did, like I I, I gave a Zoom uh, discussion of the coronavirus crisis just over a year ago, and I said then I never in my life expected to see a conservative government did what the Morrison government did. I just never expected it. And frankly, if anyone in the room expected it, I would really be pleased to have a chat as to why you did. It was just extraordinary. I think we really have to have to understand why they did it. I think they did it precisely because of the weakness and vulnerabilities of the Australian economy. They handed out all this money because they knew that that private debt was so high and so unsustainable. They couldn't have people, large numbers of people, defaulting on their mortgages if they wanted to keep the banking system going. They they knew that if they were going to have a sharp recovery after the health crisis that Frank talked about they would have to find a way so that businesses could hang on to their workers, so their systems of production, how they do stuff to, to you know, sell commodities, whether it's ca- coffees or, you know, meat or whatever, that those systems remained as intact as possible, hence JobKeeper. So both the scale and the nature of the intervention were very, very much dictated, I think, by weaknesses as well as some strength, too. The government was able to do it. There are plenty of poor countries who were not able to do what the Australian government did. But that was its agenda. They were worried about the banks. They were worried about the political consequences of mass unemployment. They were worried about what would happen if house prices fell and so on. One of the consequences of what they did, Frank mentioned this, but, but again, I want to just say a little bit more. In the quarter, in the three months where the economy shrank 7.5%, company profits went through the roof. You look at the graph and it goes like that because of the government's handouts. So this wasn't real profits, that is, real surplus value extracted by engaging in production. It was paper profits. It was kind of the illusion of profit. But nevertheless, if you're a business person and you've got another million dollars... You know, that's not an illusion. It's there. It's money. It's you know, you can you can buy another jet. Um, I think that's, and I think the other thing that happened, of course, is because of the shutdown of, of sections of the service economy, people saved money they would otherwise spend. So I think of what a lot of what we're seeing now is what you might call catch up spending, and that includes the crazy uh, housing boom that's going on at the moment. So before I get into the more long-term stuff, I just want to briefly mention a few of some of the really serious storm clouds that lie ahead. The first is coal mining, right? So the Greens are going to get their way. Coal mining in Australia is in trouble. Something like 80% of their coal exports... Sorry, the coal exports to China fell something like 80%. So the Chinese economic... Blockade, it's not a blockade, but... The, the, the discriminatory action against Australian capitalism is having a major effect on Australian uh, exports. At the same time, of course, that China's buying vast amounts of iron ore. Um, the, the, we, we know about the inter-job keeper, we know about the cuts to job seeker, but there's a whole range of other measures, uh, such as, you know, the eviction moratoria. You know, you couldn't, landlords couldn't evict people who hadn't paid their rent. Well, that's finishing... Um, rent holidays where there were discounts on rent they 're ending so there 's a whole range of other supports uh, the banks again accepting that people would you know may not pay their loans they 're gradually winding that at, that back there's still tens of billions of dollars in housing loans that people basically aren 't repaying at the moment, which the banks will move on so there 's a whole lot of measures coming up um, that that you know that could well undermine the partial, incomplete, but uneven recovery we have so far. In terms of the longer term, I want to start uh, by discussing two of the fundamental long-term dynamics in capitalism. One is the... We we talk about this a lot in Solidarity, the tendency, the long-term tendency for the rate of profit in capitalism to fall. That is a fundamental driver of the crisis, the long-term crisis of the last Um, 50 years. The second second, uh, uh, dynamic is the huge efforts made by capitalists and governments to counteract those falling real profit rates. And Mm. I think if you understand those two dynamics working against each other, I think you can understand a lot of the problems that the economy has now and the bigger problems that it's likely to have uh, in the future. So just briefly on why profit rates Uh, fall over time. It's important to understand that capitalists produce to make a profit, and those profits come from exploiting our labour. So what do the capitalists do with those profits? Well, of course, some of them live the high life. But to survive as capitalists, they need to invest most of those profits and increase productivity to reduce the amount of labour that goes into producing commodities. Because if they don't do that, their rivals will eat them. So that means automation. The result is a system in which, on average, huge amounts of capital are invested for each job. And the Reserve Bank very kindly produces every month a graph of what they call the capital-labour ratio, which is a very crude measure of what I'm talking about. And it just simply goes up and up and up and up and up like that. The source of the profits for that capital is, of course, our labour. So each worker is able to produce more and more stuff because of the incredible productivity of the system, Uh, the profit each worker produces goes up, but the profit for each dollar invested gets pushed down over time. And this is a product of the success of the system. So its very success produces this tendency to falling profit rates. Now, why do they matter? I think they matter for two major reasons. The first is that they undermine the willingness of capitalists to invest. Now, Frank talked about that one of the problems of capitalism is that, that, you know, if if they drive down our wages, we don't consume the products capitalists produce because capitalists have to sell to workers. Actually, half the uh, capitalism that we have is not producing for workers. It's producing for other capitalists, right? Um, A lot of the software, computer stuff... You know, Boeing's planes, machinery, all that stuff, how, you know, office blocks, they're, they're, all that stuff is being produced for capitalists, and it's certainly at least half of the economy. So capitalists also need capitalists to consume their goods. And if the rate of profit falls, why would you invest in a new car factory? Why would you invest in, you know, um, a new iPhone or a new, a new form of, 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 of uh, smartphone? smartphone? So so that's the first problem. And and, and what that means is that the falling rate of profit puts constant pressure on the number of jobs in the economy, the expansion of the economy, uh, and so on. The second effect it has is to intensify the class struggle. In other words, faced with this problem, capitalists do try to drive down wages and working conditions, and that's when you get resistance from the working class. Not necessarily but it certainly creates the conditions for that. It also undermines the idea that the system is something which can correct itself, that it's the best of all possible worlds, and so on. And, of course, if you look at graphs of the rate of profit in Western capitalism, you'll see that profit rates today are so much lower, as Frank mentioned, than the period when we were kids, you know, when they were much, much higher and capitalists were enthusiastic to invest. So, how do capitalists and states try to restore their profit rates? There's been a range of strategies in the last 50 years. The 70s and 80s were, I suppose, front and centre attacks on unions and trade unionism. And that worked. They did break the, 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 not totally break, but they substantially reduced the power of our unions. In the 80s and 90s, they turned to globalisation, uh, producing for global markets, free trade deals, uh, a lot of manufacturing uh, sent offshore. Actually, globalisation was very successful at modestly, re, uh, you know, a modest recovery in the rate of profit uh, in the West. In China, the rate of profit went through the roof with this massive uh, investment in manufacturing, large-scale manufacturing, global markets, uh, and so on. But, of course, that that was a a, a temporary phenomenon. That's exhausted now. They're not going to get any more out of globalisation. And Donald Trump and Joe Biden have decided that actually we're going to cut the world in two again if we can, right? So they're going to roll back the benefits that their class got or some of the benefits their class got from globalisation. 1990s, 2000s, they turned to real estate bubbles, more tax cuts and government debt to here, not to create real surplus value, which globalization actually did, but the appearance of higher profits. Um, so all of the, 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 that that increased real estate wealth. You know, you look at the nominal figure for how much household wealth is supposed to have increased by in Australia. That that was not produced by anyone working or more people working. It's it's purely a fictitious increase in wealth. It's not real. Of course, it's. If you sell your house and get the money for it, that's great. But there's not real uh, growth uh, there. And they give the appearance of wealth creation. They do stimulate some economic expansion. But the cost is massive destabilisation of the economy. And, of course, the point where that came home to roost in the West was, of course, the global financial crisis, which resulted in, in America in just vast areas of housing being deserted, the mass impoverishment of black people who had, you know, bought a house uh, and so on. Unbelievable. Australia missed most of the horrible uh, effects of the global financial crisis. And most economies went into the COVID crisis still dealing with the legacies of the global financial crisis. In Europe, a decade of stagnation and falling living standards, something like 10%, falling living standards in Britain, for instance, along with rising debt. So they, they lost both ways. Um, the US-America U.S. America had a bit of an economic recovery, but again, a, a decade of continuing falling living standards, which was only briefly turned around for some in the years before COVID. In Australia, we had years of austerity under Abbott and, uh, and Malcolm Turnbull, um, along with, again, rising government debt, new real estate bubbles in 2016 and 2019, 2020 before COVID, and dangerous levels of personal debt. Yeah, sure. So governments now face... About another three or four minutes, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Governments now face massive dilemmas, massive dilemmas. They've pushed interest rates down to zero, but these fuel financial instability and risks of a new financial crisis. I mean, I thought it was interesting the other day, the International Monetary Fund, I mean, this, this bastion, bastion of neoliberal madness, right, comes out and tells the Australian government, you've got to stop the real estate bubble. You are threatening the stability of the financial system. It wasn't on the front page of the paper. The warning was absolutely clear. they the pouring cash uh, into the economy has reduced bankruptcies, but it's increased uh, asset speculation, Um, The government debt was already a problem. Government debts now are enormously bigger and a a, a danger. Austerity policies, um, you know, again, after global financial crisis, contributed to larger deficits, more government debt, which they were supposed to deal with it. So if they do that now, they're going to have the same problem that they had after the global financial crisis. If the governments try to rein in their deficits, Australia, America, wherever... We're going to have you know, all the problems of you know, a bankruptcy, financial instability, etc. If they don't do it, they'll still have problems of financial instability, the problems that come with incredible levels of debt. Um, and business isn't going to invest in it unless it sees strong profits well into the future uh, and, and, and some surety that their investments will produce. Well, you look at the instability of American politics, global politics, the the rows with China. You know, it's it's not the kind of environment that's going to encourage a recovery in business investment, uh, to to lead to a new period of capitalist expansion. Um, and I think one of the dangers uh, for the ruling class and for us in this period is precisely because there are not no what there are. So, there just really aren't any real ways out, will be the temptation to recklessness. Um, I mean, th- th- there's also kind of uh, you know, stu- like stupidity and venality, you know, like the idea that the Australian economy is going to recover if Australia starts building guided missiles. I mean, you know, what a great strategy for re- rebuilding an economy. But recklessness, for instance, deliberately letting inflation take off to reduce the actual value of the debts people owe to banks, the ba- debts banks owed to their creditors and so on. I think that is an entirely uh, possible uh, strategy. And of course, the strategic tensions uh, with China, uh, because China has come out of the COVID crisis reasonably well. Its economy's expanded. It's exporting vast amounts of stuff to America. Uh, people are paying for it with the stimulus checks that Trump and Biden have given them and the tax cuts same's happening here. Um, and, of course, one of the main long-term legacies will be the kind of inequality Frank talked about. And in all of this, the danger is that the people who benefit will not be people who want a progressive future, a future where the enormous wealth of society goes to benefit ordinary people, but the fascists. You know, the far right who've grown on distrust of government uh, and so on, and along with racism and everything else, uh, conspiracy theories, they're the people who will benefit if there isn't a left-wing solution, a solution that offers ordinary people um, hope, hope for the future. I think the positive is that precisely the unevenness of the recovery means that we can begin to see the possibilities of militancy among workers in areas where there has actually been More than recovery. So, for instance, if there's a three-month waiting list for people to get a car, and you're a car worker, right? What are you saying? You know, it's not like, oh, if we go on strike, you know, they'll sack us all, right? They've got this massive order list; they can put prices up. And, And and I think that we can well see the opening, the possibility of militancy from those sections, and of course. Then there's the anger of all the people who've lost out. You know, the teachers who had to teach from home using Zoom, who put in unbelievable hours. The nurses who went, you know, who were expected to look after patients without proper PPE. You know, the airline workers, the hotel workers, all the people whose lives were really shit uh, in the crisis, you know. A, 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 a lead from the milita- the sections with some economic clout could certainly unleash stuff, um, resistance and re- rebellion from those people. And we don't know where it'll come from. We have to, in a sense, follow what those people who actually do fight back, where they want to fight, what they want to fight about, that's what's going to be incredibly important. But finally... In all of this, what socialists do is going to matter enormously, what we argue and the contribution we make to strengthening um, those struggles. I'll leave it at that.
0: Thanks. Thanks for all those marvellous contributions. Uh, I, I always think that if you want to make a progressive social change, you need four things. You need critique, you know, as a, a good critical analysis of the current uh, conjecture. Conjuncture, sorry, um, conjectures come later. Um, you need vision, you know, some idea of what you're aiming for. Is it, is it a more equitable society? Is it a more empowered society? Is it one in which we overcome historical sources of exploitation, oppression, etc.? You need uh, strategy, you know, some notion of how you get from here to there and you need organisation, you know, a vehicle to help uh, get to the journey done. And I think the, the points you've Touched on really illustrate that, and I think to me, indicate uh, the importance of conferences like this when you do a stock taking of what you know about the current situation, what's wrong, what might be a way forward. I think this is really very fruitful. So here I am, I've spent my life in the the education field teaching just over the road there at Sydney University political economy. I, th- I think there's a sense in which what we're doing here is, is practical political economy. I, I still churn out books in the hope that people read them and maybe find some help in, in, to, to their own uh, understanding, their own action as a result. I brought along some of those, so I'm, this sounds like I'm ending with a plug, but, but I'm actually referring to some books that I put on the table outside as a free gift uh, to uh, solidarity. So if, if you buy them, you know, I don't get any royalties from them. <laughs> it, it, but it helps to keep the circular flow of income pumping along. And of course, we all want that, don't we? Um, one's on the political economy of inequality, but there's the latest three issues of the Journal of Australian Political Economy right on all the things we've been talking about. One issue on Labor's declining share in the national income. Is this driven by a tendency to... Uh, um, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall? Is it driven by that contradiction I was alluding to in a rather neat contrast between Phil and I, emphasising the tension between uh, production and realisation of surplus value. Both elements within Marxist theorising, but giving us different ways of understanding the uh, problems of wage stagnation and and how the politics of that might open up uh, different uh, struggles for the future. And another issue on the global cl- co- sorry, the, the global coronavirus crisis and the possibilities that opens up for a new politics and the, the latest issue a bit of a heavy brick, this one, um, on the tensions between democracy and capitalism. Uh, so there, there's some reading which can be done to augment your uh, already evidently well-developed thinking on these matters. But, uh, look, this isn't primarily a, a sc- an exercise in scholarship. I think many of the points you've made are, are observations about what's happening and the political realities they open up. I was very taken, for example, by your observation that it is possible to eradicate poverty. Uh, it, of course, it depends how you define poverty, as you correctly say. And you can actually eradicate poverty while still having increased inequality if the rich are getting fabulously much richer than, than the poor are improving their lot. Um, so this complex question, but even more fundamentally that question you raised about the origins of COVID itself. Is it in capitalistic practices and their relationship to nature, including the way in which we produce food, the way in which we relate to animals? I think all those things are very fundamental, needs more analysis. But I think uh, it's it, th- these are fertile territories for for your explorations as socialists and activists. And I wish you well on the journey and I'll be with you uh, in various ways <laughs> as the struggles continue.
1: Thanks, Frank. Um, I actually want to take up the question of uh, why hasn't capitalism collapsed? I um, Uh, not because I want to deal with what I suspect is a fairly uh, contemptuous uh, response to Marxism, but because I think this is actually a really important question because it tells us something about our future, right? Why did we get the First World War? Precisely because the development of capitalism, including colonialism to, uh, you know, the the development of colonial colonial empires in order to, to boost, hold up, develop, expand rates of profit ex, you know, expand capitalism and so on precisely because in the, in the years leading up to the First World War profit rates fell, workers were militant, we get some of the most militant responses to capitalist exploitation in our history and the ruling classes turned to war precisely because they were faced with uh, challenges from their rivals for markets, uh, territory and so on. So the two crises the crises of uh, shall we say, imperial strength and the crisis of you know, uh, challenges to the rate of profit, uh, worker militancy and so on, were, were fundamental underpinnings of the drive to war in 1914. And we know what that led to, absolute bloodbath. And a crisis which was not resolved. It was not resolved. The global economy limps along in the 20s. Uh, in Britain it collapses in the mid-20s. In um, the rest of the world, after the Wall Street crash, um, and so then we're plunged into an era of mass unemployment on a horrific scale. And what comes out of that era of mass unemployment? It's not the destruction of capitalism, unfortunately. It's fascism. It's global fascism. Fascism in Germany and new wars. And that's that's what what profound unsolved economic crisis throws up is, is, is the, the fascist and again the war making uh, response. And fortunately for us the, the, war, the, the warring countries didn't destroy humanity. But what they did do, they destroyed vast areas of industrial capital. So the vast productive machinery of Germany, France, whole chunks of the British economy destroyed. unleashing the possibility of a whole new era of capital accumulation, which is what we got. And so the rates of profit in the 50s and 60s built on on the destruction of a huge proportion of industrial capitalism uh, during the war. Um, And it's precisely the end of that, that era, shall we say, of easy profitability, which leads us to the recurring crises and attempts to deal with the falling rate of profit we have today. And, of course, one of the responses today is a similar response, not yet as bad as 1914, not yet as bad as 1939, which is the fact that the imperial domination of the United States and its capitalists and its state machine is under challenge, and look what they're doing. They're trying to carve the world up into blocks again, which is what they did in uh, the 1930s, you know, when the tariff walls went up and so on. That's not going to happen this time. Capitalism's moved on. That would be far too destructive this time. But certainly the drive to war is not separated from the economic crisis. But let me just finish with two, two short quotes. The first is from Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen is Joe Biden's new Treasury Secretary. She's the American treasurer. Formerly, she was the head of the American Federal Reserve. In an email to the 84,000 staff of the US Treasury, she wrote, In addition to the pandemic, the country is facing a climate crisis, a crisis of systemic racism, and an economic crisis that has been building for 50 years. Now, I don't think she understands that crisis, but she's absolutely right. She is pointing to the crisis we are talking about here. Okay, the second quote. The second quote comes from her predecessor, Ben Bernanke, who was the head of the Federal Reserve in the United States during the global financial crisis. Um, And so Janet Yellen is talking about a long-term crisis, economic crisis and inability to raise living standards, a social discontent. It's talking about crisis of profitability, unstable finance and so on. Bernanke was dealing with what that turns into when, shall we say, the the tendency to crisis becomes an actual crisis. Again, the kind of sharp, immediate commercial crisis Marx described so brilliantly in his books, and other writers did too. It wasn't just Marx who wrote this stuff. This is what Bernanke said. As the global financial crisis uh, went ballistic the collapse of the Bear Stearns Investment Bank, the bankruptcy of the biggest insurance company in the world, the biggest mortgage insurance companies in the world were bankrupt. Um, There was the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which the government didn't uh, prevent, and that led to panic. And I don't mean panic like, you know, oh, I left home and I didn't bring my keys. I mean panic like as in, um, oh, we're on a plane and the Russians just shot it down, tight panic. (laughs) And the response of Bernanke when the US House of Representatives refused to pass the first $700 billion bailout bill. This is what he said to congressional leaders about the bailout bill on the Thursday, the 18th of September 2008. If we don't do this, we may not have an economy on Monday. That's how he described the sheer intensity of the crisis in 2008. Now, they did it, and they pulled back, and millions were left impoverished, homeless, and so on as a a result. But there was an economy on Monday. The point I'm making is this is the future that we face if we do not deal with a system that is based on exploitation, but a system whose very success has created crises which threaten humanity and threaten the sheer ability of people to live not just decent lives, but any kind of life. And that's, I think, that gives a particular urgency to what we need to talk about this weekend.